This is the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. Responsible investing has become a hugely important force for change in global finance. With climate change, human rights, and energy security top of mind, clients now expect that fund managers will have robust ESG policies in place, guiding investment decisions. We're joined from London by Daniela Wolf of Danesmead ESG to share her insights from the forefront of this fast-moving industry. Daniela explains how the bar is continually being raised for responsible investing, and she outlines the scale of the financial challenge ahead if the world is to achieve ambitious climate targets. Our Chief Client Officer, Stefan Clark, starts by asking Daniela why her clients come to Danesmead ESG and what they're looking for. So um, the Danesmead ESG business has um, been around since the beginning of 2020 and really it was just in response to um, sort of demand from uh, investment managers for, you know, for help with setting up their ESG practices and that's both within their own businesses in terms of how they run their businesses but more importantly how they run their investing like how they run their funds essentially um, and we just saw increasing demand for sort of guidance around how to implement these sort of practices what does everything mean um, how to keep their investors happy um, and especially in sort of non-standard strategies and products so we um we work with all the different investment managers, but a lot of them are hedge funds and private equity managers who are trying to navigate something that's already a little bit confusing, but also in a strategy that's um, often a bit more complicated than a sort of traditional long only. Um, we've also sort of diversified more recently into, um, so, so I guess upwards and downwards of our clients, so are the allocators into hedge funds, but then also the portfolio companies of some private equity businesses, um, especially those that are sort of private companies but maybe thinking about IPOing in the next I don't know 12 to 18 months and realizing that ESG needs to be something they can um, talk coherently about to you know, potential future investors. Fantastic and so you you have clients in multiple jurisdictions is that right? So where, where are they predominantly based? Yeah uh, we're about a third UK and Europe about two thirds um, US I realize this is not going to add up to 100 but we, we have a couple of Asia clients as well but yeah, at the moment primarily US um, but I'd say a year ago that that was sort of two thirds Europe one third US um, and so we, we've definitely flipped in the last 12 months. Interesting and so uh, I mean with with your clients are they with externally, do they appear to be ESG focused, or is it something that is sort of is evolving? It's very much evolving, and we should be really clear as well that the majority of our clients don't run sort of ESG labelled products. Some of them do, um, but the majority run normal strategies, um, you know, just sort of with a goal of um, maximising returns. Essentially, you know, they don't necessarily have sustainability goals or um, targets or objectives in their strategies. Some of them do, the majority of them don't, but they're still facing a lot of um, sort of pressure from investors to articulate and sort of formalise how they think about ESG issues within their investment processes. And that seems to be the sweet spot where they aren't experts because they don't need to be and shouldn't have to be, yet they're still being asked to really prove um, this point. And, and uh, yeah, that's where the sort of niche is. Okay, and, and I guess that's probably the, the great point to sort of circle back. So let's let's talk about what is ESG and why is it important, and how is it that it's central to investors' minds, but isn't you know on the tin as such yet. I know it's a really good question, and I think that ESG 
does mean different things to different people. And I think this is why people they spend a lot of time wondering kind of how to how to address it. Um, and it's probably really important, I think, to, to set out from the beginning. ESG is a really subjective concept, and the, the issues within the bracket of ESG are all, or many of them, are really really subjective, which makes it quite complicated. And what what's happening is a, a group of people who are quite analytically minded typically you know investors like facts and data and they like to be able to sort of look at inputs and convert them with their methodologies into their sort of outputs are suddenly being asked to formalize views on very very subjective things and um kind of define how they think about it in a really systematic way but that's that's i think we're we're sort of confusing two skill sets and they aren't always perfectly aligned um so i think that's that's kind of a a good starting point everything here is very subjective and when we talk about specific esg issues it's always important to think remember that one investor will think very differently from another about whether this is an issue um in terms of kind of you I guess what people are doing or the, the approaches to it. Um, I think it's also important to clarify we have all these interchangeable terms around responsible investment, socially responsible investing, ESG, um, and there's thousands of others, and they all are used quite interchangeably, which I think is also quite dangerous. And historically, ESG simply just meant exclusion. So essentially just investors avoiding certain sectors or industries or activities based on like either ethical beliefs or um, sometimes religious beliefs, you know, all, all sorts of um, kind of moral reasons. Um, and we do still see that, that does still happen, but not normally on its own anymore. So the ask is like the, the bar has raised here and the ask is more about the sort of systematic inclusion of ESG issues in the way that you think about investment analysis and making investment decisions. Um, so really from a sort of due diligence perspective, with a goal of managing risks and improving returns by having considered those ESG issues. So really it's not saying we want you to be the greenest of funds, but we want you to protect our income and our returns from ESG issues as well as financial issues. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, we obviously still have to do sort of thematic and impact investing where there is a defined and measurable um, sort of sustainability goal, um, which is a great thing, which is happening. But I think this, this middle zone of the just simply integrating ESG and using ESG um, in the kind of due diligence process is, is where everybody is being asked to get to even those that aren't trying to kind of achieve some kind of impact. Right. And so when you say the due diligence process, you're talking about when portfolio managers like Mark and Andrew are considering their, the investments that they make and then obviously the knock-on effects of when capital flows into those investments, what, what social or, or other impacts it can have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So when you in your normal process, you know, whatever sort of financial analysis process you normally do, the idea is that you also need to be thinking about ESG issues along with that. And the majority of the time, that's already happening. These things aren't new. Like these aren't new issues. It's just that we're now being asked to better articulate how we think about them and do so in a um, structured way rather than in a sort of ad hoc way. And I think when when you get into these conversations, and we have a lot of conversations with a lot of different investment teams, initially they're usually a little bit concerned that we're going to ask them to significantly change something about their process. 
and often a big part of it is just articulating um, the ESG elements that are already going on and then potentially enhancing and not changing you know, not changing your goals right but but adding in um, elements that might be different and I don't know, maybe like this we could sort of illustrate it with examples a bit better but um, I think when we think about environmental issues for example we are aware of potential um, future regulation let's say in the way that we can use certain energy or the cost that we may face by doing so. It's those sorts of things that we need to make sure are being um, factored into business models and you know, the way that businesses operate. I would be very surprised if investment teams weren't already thinking about those sorts of things if they're sort of on the horizon, but it's about thinking about them in a way that um, you can prove you've thought about them and, and you know, shown how they've been integrated into the, into the decisions. Danielle, just on, on that topic at the moment, um, when we look at companies, we tend to be certain sectors where we really want to see some companies are, are making big steps forwards from an ESG front. So, for example, if we're looking at companies in the chemical sector, which might burn a lot of natural gas, so they're not natural gas or oil producers, but they use a lot of these products, we want to see what they're doing to kind of limit their use or improve their efficiency. And and the same might be said in, say, a, a mining industry or, or something in the metals or mining. So, they, again, they're not um, they're not restricted from NZ, NZ funds ESG policy because they're not, um, all these companies aren't actually producers of... Um, of um, carbon gases and oils, but but they are heavy users of those products. Um, so, from from the clients that you work with, or, or um, the advice you provide, how how do things change from a sector perspective? Because obviously, ESG issues, you know, even if we just install um, put oil and gas to a side, but say focus on more sort of chemicals or metals and mining, um, they have very different ESG consequences than say a technology company, which is maybe more focused on the governance side. Absolutely, and, and there is a huge sector sort of differences, and and also appropriately expect different expectations across different sectors for how far they need to go in some of these things. And your illustration is very useful there because um, it's it, that's you've you've touched on a point of like it's very difficult to sort of know how far to go with some of these things and where you know, where the line ends. So. For those who do have exclusions, like you say, you can exclude those things, but you don't necessarily extend that to the businesses who are heavily dependent on them and the main you know, responsibility for an investor in my opinion in, in that context is making sure that you feel those businesses are resilient um, to the sort of adaptation required uh, to move away from or to move you know, use more efficiently certain energy um, so there's, there's definitely big sector differences um, there are some really really useful tools that a lot of our clients use I'm sure you're familiar as well things like the sustainability accounting standards board has a sort of materiality map that helps to guide investors as to the most relevant ESG issues for different sectors. And it's a sort of matrix of sectors and issues. And um, it's basically just a heat map of that. Um, and there's other sort of tools like that that's definitely been very helpful in trying to understand, okay, what's the most material for this sector? What do I need to really, really focus on? Because there are so many different ESG issues and everybody's, you know, there's already a lot of things to consider. It's definitely useful to sort of focus the, the relevance. Um, what's also been interesting, I know we might talk about issues, um, issues of regulation later, but some regulators as well have, the ones who have started to require um, certain, uh, I guess, disclosures and um, kind of considerations to be taken place in the investment process, have done so in such a way that they've said, do so where this is material and relevant. And I think there's a really important kind of context, like a concept, I guess, in terms of um, as an investor, just limiting what you're focusing down to what is exactly those things, material and relevant to that particular sector or opportunity. 
Which gives, uh, I mean, um, which is an interesting sort of segue to regulators and the regulator world. And, and I imagine that, I mean, I'm aware that there's a, you know, a range of different sort of activities from governments at a, at a governmental level and then, you know, as, as agencies of the government's regula- regulators and different approaches. Do you want to, I guess, explain um, at, a, at a global high level how the regulators are approaching it and the sort of key differences you're seeing, uh, disclosures, I guess, being a, a key focus currently and, and how that might evolve? Yeah, for sure. I think we see regulators trying to solve, sort of achieve two main things. One is to do with disclosures and the other is to do with sort of um, like classification and clarity. Um, so on the disclosure side, um, that seems to be starting primarily on climate-related disclosures. So we've seen that from loads of um, sort of you know, key regulators. The UK has done it in Europe. The US has recently just launched that for corporates, not yet for investment managers. Hong Kong, Japan, New Zealand obviously has its own version for financial firms um, coming in next year. And the majority of those are basing disclosures on um, kind of recognised frameworks like the TCFD, which has been really, really useful. Um, And uh, we've been involved in lots of consultations with different regulators in terms of helping inform how we think they should align them and um, one of the things that the SEC did very well I think was basically ask the question of which framework should we use so we don't duplicate because this is a really big this is a global issue and investors often look very globally across different corporate disclosures and the ability to compare them is obviously really key. So this has been a really, really good step forward but it is very much a sort of first step. So most regulators are just um, mandating the disclosure, not any action, but simply the collection of data, usually around GHG emissions, sort of carbon footprinting, that kind of um, information. And how, I mean, TCFD has a lot of qualitative kind of disclosures as well around how management has responsibilities and um, the kind of how you manage those risks, as well as some metrics around them. Um, but that's, to me, that's like sort of step one in you have to measure it and, and record it to start to then mandate it. Um, the other side that we're seeing is on the kind of classification side. So Europe's taken a big step forward in this already. Um, they released a piece of regulation called the SFDR, which is a Sustainable Financial Disclosure Regulation. Um, and it has a sort of extraterritorial reach. So anybody marketing into Europe also is kind of caught in scope for this. So this has become quite a global piece of regulation, even though it's a European-driven thing. And what they've asked um, investment products to do is um, identify themselves as one of three different groups. Um, article 6, Article 8 and Article 9 is what they're known as. And essentially Article 6 means um, that you don't do anything specifically ESG related. You may integrate ESG issues, but um, nothing particularly ESG focused. Article 8 um, means that you have to have a sort of um, environmental or social characteristic um, promoted by that fund. Um, and Article 9 is, is sort of more impact. So you have to have an obje- you know, some sort of sustainable objective. And what that's really helped with is um, it's helped investors understand what their the, whether the product that they're investing in has uh, met, I guess, certain sustainability standards. And I think before we had anything like this, it was very difficult um, for anyone to make those determinations. And I mean, we've seen a lot of articles in recent months. I'm sure you have as well around such and such investor thought they were investing in a product that was called ESG and thought it was going to be a very very clean product, but actually. Um, they probably confused ESG with the concept of impact and they probably thought they were investing in something that was more impact related but ESG in these contexts often just means they are 
considering ESG risks in their investment processes, which essentially is the risks of the world on the company rather than the risk of the company on the world. Um, so I think these sorts of regulations are going to help to clean some of that up and um, remove that kind of nuance. Um, it's very early days, though. That's the first of its kind that we've seen that came out last year. The UK is working on its own version, which will be a sort of proposed to be a five-part justification. And I expect to see more and more of these sorts of things coming up in the future but I think it's a really useful tool and I think it's what the industry needs um, because I think there is still a lot of confusion about what is truly sustainable and, and what isn't. Okay and so um, is other states looking to Europe and to follow suit or are they um, sort of carving their own path? Um, I, mean, I think there's a slightly different political landscape there and, um, and I won't sort of comment on that necessarily but I, but I think that it's not as, it doesn't seem as, as sort of clean um, they have followed in the sort of disclosure path and um, they've started with corporates and they will follow with asset managers um, I've not yet seen anything on sort of classifications but from a regulatory perspective the SEC they came out last week with an update of their sort of 2022 um, you know, examination priorities and ESG is sort of very much on their list. Their big focus is, and I suppose this is sort of in somewhat the same kind of know, idea as this classification idea, but their big focus is if you say you do something from an ESG perspective, we need to see that you're doing it. And the big problem is if you say that you're doing something you're not doing, as with all um, sort of you know, SEC type exams, that's always been the case. But um, so I suppose they are kind of asking for that clarity and they're not saying we want you to do this, but if you say you do this, we need you to be doing it. And that's their, that's their main focus, really. Right, okay. And I guess all of this is underpinned by the idea that disclosure, once classified, um, will drive a bunch of changes in, in, in the investment landscape. And right now that's the problem. But, and so it's assuming that investors will go, okay, we, wanna, we want to see, assuming the regulator's goals are what they are. Um, uh, do you think that it will transition across to mandating at some point or at, at a soft level and then presumably a harder level or is that not in scope for, for regulators? I think it's hard to think that it won't eventually ask. Well, it's hard to think that regulators won't eventually start to suggest that some minimum standards need to be met and I think that they will you know countries have made commitments that need to be sort of fulfilled by the corporates within those countries so it's hard to think that that won't eventually happen but um, I'm sort of not an authority on whether that will happen or not but my opinion is that but like, I would expect that eventually but I think more imminently what's likely is um, investors are increasingly making sort of commitments and pledges to invest only in companies that meet XYZ standards. So there's been a heap of extra sort of initiatives that have come out of the last few years, like Climate Action 100 and the um, Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative and so on climate. And there's absolutely loads of them, but all of them kind of have a similar purpose, which is in, you know, investment managers making commitments that they will only invest in companies that do X, Y, or Z, or that they will work with companies, better still, to, you know, make climate action plans or to set net zero targets and, and these sorts of things. So I think the pressure will come from investors probably before it comes from regulators. And I think that's the same thing as we've seen with other parts of these regulations that have come out. Investors have been asking for clarity and transparency and that's what regulators deliver. Investors have been asking for sort of classifications and that's what investors have asked them. So I think eventually we will get there, but probably just as a result of the pressure from investors on companies, that will happen much quicker. Right. 
It was it was mentioned earlier that um you know in the technology space governance is more sort of focused on uh, and uh, whereas in you know in, in other sectors uh, climate change is one and then there's obviously the social elements to, to, to the ESG I guess approach. Uh, Obviously, climate change, because of its nature, is getting a lot of attention. Um, but that's that's moving across. Are you seeing developments in the other two areas and, and that evolving more? Um, yes and no. I mean, climate, for obvious reasons, by sort of economic and um, the real world reason that climate has, has been such a big topic recently, and I think investors have grabbed onto it partly because it's such a big hype around it, but also because it's the easiest to measure in many ways. And it's it's therefore easier to sort of see whether you're achieving goals and making differences and you know, setting thresholds and all these sorts of things. Whereas it's much more difficult to measure certain social outcomes and, and governance outcomes. Um, on the governance side, um, I see, in our client base certainly, I see that governance is usually the thing that investment professionals are sort of best first on and they've been thinking about this forever and it's been well certainly post the financial crisis it's been a very big focus on alignment of interest with shareholders executive compensation like loads of governance issues have already played quite a big part in their um kind of investment decisions and what they'll often say when we speak to investment teams is we've got the governance stuff that's fine but just how do we how do we tackle the social and the environmental side so i don't think um I think from what I've seen, that seems to have quite well developed. What I think hasn't been well developed is the articulation of it. So again, coming back to the point we were talking about earlier, investors just putting pressure on managers to be very, very clear about how they're thinking about these issues and what they care about, what are their priorities um, and you know, what things are they likely to engage on. We haven't really talked about engagement yet, but that's a really big um I guess, kind of transition from assessing to then starting to engage. And we're starting to see that move a lot um, sort of, you know, more positively now. Um, and, and there are some strategies for sure, like M&A strategies or distressed debt, where governance is a, is a really, really central focus of what they do and always has been and, and you know, is unlikely to change. Um, on the social side, I think we, we will get there. I think it's going to be slower because I think people are just going to sort out the climate kind of needs first before they tackle the social needs, which I think they see as slightly less urgent. Um, we are seeing, again, from a regulatory perspective, so the EU has something called the um, EU Taxonomy, which is an environmental sort of uh, framework for um, measuring the extent to which your investment products kind of meet certain um, environmental economic criteria. They are working on releasing a social version of that as well. So I think we will see movement on the social side, but I just think it's going to lag climate um, by you know, easily a couple of years. Right. And so under the, I guess, the banners of social, what would be the sort of the, in the areas you're focusing on the, the, the key issues? And then similarly under governance, what you mentioned, obviously shareholder alignment and and um, and compensation. Are there, are there other areas that, that are sort of central in, in investors' minds currently? Oh, definitely. I mean, on the social side, um, well, again, depending on the sector, but using your technology sector as an example, um, big focus on sort of data protection and privacy and, and everything like that, which there has been for some time. Um, really, really big focus on sort of diversity and inclusion and equity related issues as well. Um, and I think that's been globally has been quite a big issue. What, what I think is really, really interesting is the sort of regional differences between, um, I guess, attitudes and tolerances towards different social issues like diversity and inequality. Um, 
And coming back to this point about ESG being very subjective, I think this is a very, very important area that um, it's it's important to understand the different expectations of companies in different regions of how they will approach these sorts of issues. Um, We see a lot of focus on stuff like human rights and labour standards, um, you know, sort of modern slavery type um, disclosures and commitments. Um, We see, what other quite big things? I'd say sort of uh, like a customer protection. Um, So firstly sort of access to certain consumers but also um yeah, i guess you think actually against things like predatory lending um against anything that would kind of be detrimental to sort of customers so, a, a real range but it depends on very much depends on the sector we, we actually had um a very interesting example um of a company which is screens very well on an environment environmental front but very poorly on labor rights and um that company is one that everyone will know called tesla and um we took a look at that uh, about a year ago um they assumed it would be a no-brainer passing our esg criteria but um what we found was they actually um had had some unions which were trying to be set up um a number of years ago um i think the senior management and elon musk um pushed very hard to not allow that to happen and in fact in fact were reportedly um fired a bunch of employees who were in charge of setting up that union so what ended up happening is that while it might have screened very well on the environmental front it screened very poorly on the labour rights front and I think that's a very classic example of companies you might think would be um, an absolute no-brainer but while they might be good in one area they're very poor in, in other areas and I know um, Amazon why Amazon is is investable um, or um, has usually been investable uh, with NZ funds I think there might have been a change with that um, recently in our, in our criteria but Amazon again is a company which is usually very hard on unions and, and labour rights so um, it's, it, it's certainly very complex and you can't just assume a company such as Tesla is um, is doing really great things to change the um, environmental side but you know they have to sort of meet all the criteria. Oh absolutely and I think you, you also see these sorts of issues being much more headline now than they would have been a few years ago and um, I'm not sure sort of to what extent these have become global news uh, sort of stories but there's a big the big P&O issue at the moment with the way that they've sort of um, removed a whole bunch of workers has become such a big issue that it's not just a risk of um, the issue itself to the investment opportunity but also the sort of reputational and the shareholder risk in that so many other shareholders cease to want to be a part of that that then there is a kind of knock-on effect of it so I, th- I think it's been a it's it's the, the sort of mainstream element of some of these issues has accelerated how much they've kind of you know, been important I guess the other dimension to it is is greenwashing and lots of um, commentary out there at the moment around, uh, I guess, the risks of greenwashing and the idea that it sort of undermines uh, the industry's credibility in ESG. And also then it it creates uh, complexity for obviously asset managers and other investors who are trying to understand what they're they're actually investing in. And and if, if firms cynically try and you know, uh, present a particular way when in fact it's not the case. Is that you know how how are your clients looking at that, and how how do you sort of see that as a as a broader risk yeah. to the industry? Oh, hugely! Uh, I'd say our clients are looking at it really conservatively, and um, in that they are desperately trying not to be accused of greenwashing. And it's a really sort of important balance to strike in terms of you know, doing enough, but being clear enough about what's being done that they don't get that that sort of accusation. Um, 
going back to the sort of regulatory point again, that's a big part of what these um, sort of classification style regulations are seeking to try and solve, which is remove that um, element of you know, risk of greenwashing because certain criteria will have to be met to sort of achieve um, different labels. Um, what I think the, the, the risk is, and I think we've seen this happen, is that some sort of investment managers are so nervous about being accused of greenwashing that they will sort of under-target their um, product, if you like. So let's say we have a spectrum of three different kind of classifications and they could probably you know, stretch to be the most um, sustainable version. They might opt for the one below it just because they don't want to be accused of, sort of not quite doing everything they need to do. I think that the, the result of that, the sort of unintended consequence of that is that people aren't pushing themselves far enough and it would be, we want a system, I think, that, kind of encourages more sustainable investing and more sort of impacts on investing without putting fear into managers of getting it wrong. So I think we've got a little bit of work to do there, but um, it's a really, really big issue. I think people are terrified of being um, accused of greenwashing. And so, yeah, if anything, take a more conservative approach of how they explain it. Do you, um, do you find that when you're engaging with your clients and, for example, the, the issue that Andrew was talking about before with respect to Tesla... Is that something you routinely find where that they uh, will be looking to make an investment and then discover actually we, we can't proceed with this in spite of you know, o- o- you know expectations that they could? Um, it does happen. I wouldn't say that often. I think um, I think the, the main thing to remember is that for, for products that aren't sort of labelled as ESG and trying to achieve particular sort of sustainability objective, where the purpose is simply to consider ESG risks as a you know, as risks like any other and really you're only focused therefore on those where you think there'll be a material sort of financial impact if if there is an ESG risk that you think has no bearing on your investment and no you know, reputational risk associated either um in theory there's no reason why you shouldn't you know couldn't shouldn't go ahead with that investment so it's unlikely I think that people get to the end of their due diligence process and suddenly find this huge ESG red flag and say, oh no, we can't go any further with it. Normally those things are very much on their radar already and sort of incorporated in whether they're willing to kind of go past that point. Um, So I'd say it doesn't, I don't think it happens that often, but I think that the process that we've gone through with all of these managers has helped them to find those sorts of things earlier and understand what is relevant and what they do need to be thinking about. And, And so perhaps saving that wasted effort to find it at the last minute. But I, I, don't, I think it's unlikely to find things at the very last minute. That big. And, and some, I guess, investee companies are on a, you know, they, they're very explicit about the journey they're on to change the way that they're operating. And obviously there are um, oil companies that are transitioning to energy companies and energy companies that are uh, focusing on, um, you know, more sustainable forms of energy production as examples. And, you know, it would, uh, socially, it wouldn't necessarily be a good outcome if we um, deprive those companies of capital. So I guess investors need to look at a, a, take a longer term view in, in some instances. Absolutely. And that's also one of the sort of arguments why simply excluding names that are sin industries for whatever your definition is, isn't the always the best thing to do. Because in the, the argument is that if you are a responsible investor, it's better that you're the shareholder than somebody who isn't, and that you might actually engage and encourage uh 
you know, certain business strategy in a certain direction or vote in certain ways in AGMs or, you know, act, act in a more responsible way. So, like I said at the beginning, we don't usually see exclusion as the only thing people do these days because it's usually exclusion with some sort of integration um, and the ability to actually make a difference is obviously the most impactful thing you can do. So, yeah, I think I kind of come back to that same point. And just on, on that, I was about to talk about energy as well, Stefan, so maybe we're talking about the same thing. It's, um, I think you a good point you raised, Stefan, about depriving companies of capital and um, and certainly the oil and gas sector and um, if I more specifically talk about oil companies in the US have had a period where investors have been extremely tough on them, both from um, probably not getting good enough returns over the last decade or so, your oil price peaked previously in, in 2007 and, and then maybe the investment ramped up a little bit quickly after that. But then certainly in the last five or six years, as ESG has become more of a focus from investors, people have been allocating capital away from those sectors. And, and what that generally means is if these companies are not getting capital, they're not going to reinvest in oil, which in some sense is, is really achieving what the goal is, which is to reduce our reliance on oil, reduce subduction oil. But then you sometimes have the consequence we're getting now, which is oil going to very high prices. We're getting really high inflation. And actually, um, I think last week there was a, a commission that was held with a bunch of senior senators and, and CEOs of oil companies where they accused these oil companies of actually intentionally trying to um, to to or not not drilling enough wells and not not producing enough oil to try to push the oil price high. But the CEOs are then trying to defend themselves. I was saying, look, we we haven't we've been very much pushed by our um, investors to be um, disciplined on drilling new wells and disciplined on supplies. So, yeah, we can't have it both ways. And I think this is maybe over the next year or two, as we go through this high commodity price cycle, we're going to get the tension between this of you know how how hard is pushing at ESG going to actually cause other issues such as high inflation and and you know and that, and that creates issues that really impacts on consumers, particularly sort of lower. Um, lower economic um, or lower income consumers. Absolutely. And um, I guess you'll start seeing the tension playing out and the approach investment managers need to need to take. Uh, so, yeah. Energy security, I was actually going to take a slightly different um, angle, which is just that energy security generally is really at the fore at the moment. Obviously, um, what's going on in the Ukraine is... Um, uh, you know, driving this to, to an extent, and and is that changing the way your investment or your clients are looking at um, energy security, and how and and where do you think uh, you know is that going to change the way that Europe thinks about its policy? In terms of what's going on in Ukraine, direct impact on. Yeah, well, just in terms of right now, right, uh, energy security is so central to thinking, and you know, obviously in Germany and, and across Europe, and um, and, and, and in some respects, it's in conflict with uh, some of the ESG approaches that um, have been have been uh, promoted up until more recently. And I guess the same can be seen, said of armaments uh, in, to an extent as well. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, we should talk about that as well. But the, I mean, on the energy security side, I think I think Andrew sort of touched on this point. It's the same companies who are falling into the sort of bad energy as are making improvements and um, you know, heavily investing in sort of renewables and t- taking this direction. And I actually I promised you a stat, and I did gather a useful one. So. Um, 
just in this context of sort of energy and, and I guess kind of climate change and the impact it's having on it, the, um, the OECD have a bunch of research on this and what they have said is that they expect 6.3 trillion of investment in infrastructure required annually between 2016 and 2030 to meet these sort of climate goals and a lot of that is obviously focused on you know, certain industries, including obviously energy, industry, transportation, those sorts of things, agriculture. Um, so the economic sort of impacts of that, and and I guess I, I guess the sort of you know it is not possible anymore to ignore these in, in in any investment decision, not just directly in energy companies, is so huge. Um, like, like I think it has to be in everybody's in the way that everybody thinks about sort of you know, economic paths. I don't I don't think I know enough about the sort of regulatory. Uh, plans of specifically on that but um i, I can't yeah i don't, I don't I'm sort of, yeah don't have my crystal ball on that one but I, yeah i think it i mean i can't believe it won't be a huge thing do you want to talk about defense yeah let's do it very briefly so obviously that's because uh, i mean generally defense um Spending has been, you know, by many is considered to be, um, until more recently, um, an area that's, you know, commonly excluded. And now it's, you know, central to a lot of the thinking. And, and I, I guess that's caused some people to, um, or, or, you know, us to revisit, you know, what that means morally, socially and so forth. Is that something you're seeing across your clients? Yeah, this has been a really interesting debate over the past sort of uh, well, six weeks or so. Um, it's, it's, it's probably such a big debate about basically how far investment in defence becomes necessary in the sort of effort to protect human rights and democracy and so on. And, and look, this is not to comment on whether we think this is right or wrong um, from a sort of political perspective. But what, the thing that we've observed is, um, and a lot of our clients do have some exclusions and they specifically do relate to weapons, but usually it relates to specific weapons. So um, they will define this. Whereas other industries, they might just give a blanket exclusion, like tobacco, any production distribution, you know, gone. Whereas weapons, it's often a lot, a lot more um, nuanced. And so it'll be focusing on you know, some illegal and controversial weapons. Um, so nuclear, biological, chemical, cluster munitions, these sorts of things are specifically sort of called out here. Um, and so those who do have those exclusions are not, I don't think, likely to change these sorts of things overnight. I think that they're very unlikely to just make changes based on you know, geopolitical developments in general to so these sorts of exclusion lists. I think you sort of set your lists and occasionally change. Those that don't have those sorts of exclusions and who are sort of sense-checking whether or not they want to get into defence stocks or stay in defence stocks, um, I think for those who are able to conduct enough due diligence to be comfortable that weapons manufacturers are supporting defensive rather than offensive action are making a really fair case for it. Um, but it's a very subjective concept and not all investors have that ability. To, to kind of do that level of due diligence. So it very much depends on the strategy. And remember, we work with a lot of kind of complex strategies or very, very fast-moving investors who don't stick in things for very long, um, like quantitative strategies or um, or even you know, convertible arbitrage type strategies where they're not really taking a view on a company or M&A where they're not really predicting what's coming. You know, so different strategies that don't have the ability to sort of do that level of um, due diligence, I think they're finding it harder to kind of make the... Um, to be able to justify to the investors that they're comfortable with it. Um, ultimately, though, I think from our client base, they're, they're sort of responding to their investors' 
um, wishes on this. And if investors are very strongly opinionated, then they will, you know, honour that. And as long as their investors are comfortable, they'll you know, they'll kind of proceed. But um, yeah, I don't think we're going to suddenly see a bunch of exclusion lists changing overnight. I, I think that that takes a lot longer. Engagement, you mentioned earlier, and that's a growing area within ESG. And do you want to just talk about what you mean by that and then how is it developing? Definitely. And this is a really important thing. And um, I feel bad we haven't really touched on it until now because it is such a significant thing. So the sort of ESG, I guess the response from investing kind of progression goes from identifying issues and assessing those issues to actually taking action as a a shareholder and using your position as... um, you know, an asset owner to be able to influence um, corporates. And that will obviously depend on your level of control and level of influence and depends therefore on the product that you're holding. So if you're a private equity manager and you have complete control or majority ownership and therefore quite a lot of control, then you can mandate what companies do and you can say, we have minimum requirements, we need you to collect these data points, we need you to take these actions. And so you really can use your position to um, make an impact and directly sort of influence change. If you're a list equity holder and maybe lots of small positions, obviously less so, but you know, you can collaborate with other investors or you can participate with letter writing, you can vote at AGMs, you can, there's lots of things you can do. Um, for some strategies, that's very, very difficult if you're you know, holding a position through some sort of derivative instrument, you may not have any direct actual ownership there, very limited you know, sort of as to what you can do. But um, it's a really important part of, I think, what the goal ultimately should be of a lot of this ESG is not just to figure out what the issues are and get away from it if it's a bad thing, but to sort of make the change if you um, if you have the position. Yeah, which brings us back to that um, that point about subjectivity you made at the very beginning and about how if you are an investor and you're holding something, suppose you hold you know a small allocation and and hedge shares to to a security um, and 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 you want the business to make a change. Um, that's a moral overlay that you're 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 you know uh, sort of adding to your investment decision, and obviously you're going to in that setting try and engage with the management of the investee company and encourage them to to make the change. Obviously, if you're yeah. a PE company, you can just demand it, but um, f- yeah. f- for us, that's you know, the, and for a lot of asset managers, that's not always available to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And but it's it's the direction we're definitely seeing things going for those who are in a position to do so for sure. Daniela, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been a real pleasure to get your insights and views on things. And um, uh, I wish you the best for what's left of your evening in London. <laughs> thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advised Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.